Nice to see you all. Andrew here. Um, yeah, this is what? Session four of our little gathering daily. Session five. Is this session five already? Oh, wow. Okay. I stand corrected. I sit corrected. Session five. Um, and, you know, the spirit of these things is, is uh, you may know by now, is incre uh, incredibly informal, just a kind of a chat room to get together. Um, over the past couple of sessions, I've introduced some of these kind of I playfully call them emergency meditations, um, which just basically relates to their immediacy, their applicability, that we can use these things on the spot. And so just to briefly repeat, we can start with the first one, one that I use a lot um, all the time is this one breath meditation session. So literally for the course of one inhalation, one exhalation, you just bring your awareness as fully into the sensation of your body and breath. And that's it. In one breath, you've, you've accomplished your meditation, meditation quota for the day. <laughs> um, so one breath meditation. Fantastic. Terrific way to counteract these uh, incredible tendencies we have, certainly I have, to just contract. Um, and so what I do is every time I feel the sense of contraction, which conjoins with the second practice about complaining, um, I do this meditation as the way to connect to what I'm really feeling, be more true to myself, and not capitulate to the kind of spin doctors, uh, what in Sanskrit is called prapancha, proliferation, that usually ensues. And so the, the second, um, I can't remember exactly the order I presented these over these last four weeks, but the second one is, is this really powerful practice as well, um, this, this complaining practice, right? Or anti-complaint, the, uh, the uh, remedy, the antidote for complaining is of course, whenever you feel the tendency to complain, to criticize, and then uh, it was pointed out, my friend Joy helped me, you know, it's just not overt complaint, but it's also the internal narrative, the incessant complaining we have that runs, you know, the CNN crawler in our own minds, this uh, ongoing subconscious gossip that's so highly critical. Um, so whenever you feel the urge to complain, to criticize, which happens like how many times a day, pause for a second. That little pause is a kind of bardo yoga, a little gap. Touch into your body and inquire. This is kind of a pashna component. The stopping part is the shamatha. The looking within and connecting is vipashna. And say, what am I feeling right now that I just don't want to feel? And then stay with that. Stay embodied in that. Notice a tendency to squirt out, out of your body. You know, complaining, as I uh, said playfully, is an out-of-body experience. You jump out of the sensation as a way to avoid it. And you have to express yourself. I got to express myself. Well, you don't have to express yourself. Stay with the feeling. Um, that actually purifies it. And maybe we'll get a chance to talk later about how our inability to actually do that creates these, these psychic abscesses. These, they're called samskaras in uh, you know, Hinduism and Buddhism. And it's a monumentally huge, important topic about how it is that our inability to be with difficult situations to um, 
digest, metabolize them, our inability to, to digest our experience creates these um, samskaras that are lodged in our unconscious mind or subtle body and therefore come to really rule um, and often ruin our so-called conscious lives. So this is a really powerful uh, practice to stay connected, keeps you from creating karma because whenever samskaras are triggered and you get reactive, it's this visual circle of reactivity that continues to just propagate karma. So one way to purify karma is just stay with difficult situations, difficult feelings. Even if you're feeling totally like crap, that does not create karma. It's the result of karma, but it doesn't create karma. Um, and so to, to, in a certain sense, let that karma burn itself out, stay in the fires. Uh, Sanskrit is alamgrasa, uh, burning to sameness, to incinerate the experience, to cremate your experience when you live it. Not easy to do when you're, you know, the digestion is uh, something you don't want to digest. You're involved in painful, difficult situations like what's happening now. And the tendency is, is not to stay with it. So this is a little bit warrior type practice. Takes a little bit of guts to do this. And then um, I can't remember the sequence. We did a little bit about the Tonglin practice, sending and taking, and how that when we get a sense with some familiarity with this really beautiful kind of rugged industrial strength meditation, you can do the, the practice of sending and taking on one breath. You see something on TV that's really hard to witness. Another option would be you open, you connect, you actually breathe that in. Um, and of course, the reason you can do that, as I mentioned, this I did mention last week, is you're not breathing it in. You, as the cosmos, brings it in. And then with every exhalation, you offer goodness, healing, love, and light. And so just these three practices alone really have a, a tremendous applicability. And uh, I find myself taking refuge in them all the time. I wanted to start my little riff for today, fresh. I wanted to actually read a couple things from a really interesting article in the New York Times. Um, I get the Sunday issue, which alone is worth the price of admission. It's an amazing collection of really interesting comment uh, articles and liking. So this one uh, is titled, I'm Grieving Now, You May Be Too. So I'm going to just read a little bit about um, this, and then we'll open it up for discussion in the Q&A like we usually do. So this is worth sharing. So this is about the epidemic of unspoken grief. Everybody's got pain they're carrying around, but they never get to say it. It doesn't go away if you don't get to say it. It comes out in epidemics of suicidality, depression, social isolation, and loneliness. This, of course, is part of the special cruelty of this, of this pandemic how it isolates us at a time when grieving, afraid, we might crave fellowship. This is when we most need to connect with other people. But how to find true deep connection when we can't so, when we can't so much as touch anyone we're not already living with? One of the reasons we avoid conversations about grief is because it tends to make us feel helpless. And nobody likes to feel helpless. When we feel helpless, we tend to do things to make the other person's pain go away so that we can stop feeling helpless. This is why people so often give unsolicited advice or try to dismiss pain by saying that it could be worse 
or that everything happens for a reason, it lets us skirt the feelings of helplessness. And so right here, interjection, the advice here is stay with that feeling of helplessness. As unsettling and disquieting as it may be, have the spaciousness, the accommodation, the, the openness of heart and mind to stay with that feeling. And, and notice the tendency how, because it is so unsettling, to, to kind of fill the space with unsolicited advice or commentary or just um, you know, mindless chatter. So the invitation here is, even though it feels uncomfortable, just stay with that. It's also possible to use words here to listen. Grief can't be fixed, but it can be acknowledged. And acknowledgement is the best medicine. It seems like it's too simple to be helpful, but it's actually often the only thing that works for others, but also for ourselves. Take the time to check in with yourself, to slow down, to slow down and to name your pain. And this is where I might disagree with this, this writer, um, Quan. There's no need to name it, just feel it. And in fact, in, in the, the spiritual literature tradition, they say very often, it's better not to name it because naming it can, can give it a level of reality, um, a reification, a status that it doesn't inherently have. And this particular riff has profound implications and how it is that very often the, the way we think, the way our language operates, um, un unwittingly colors, affects, and imbues phenomenal experiences with status it doesn't inherently have. So you don't need to name it, just feel it. So just to return to that, take the time now to check into yourself, slow down, and I would say just feel it. Not to fix it, since it likely can't be fixed, but to notice it. And then just a few more sentences. Coronavirus grief is already a vast, monstrous grief. It's reach and breadth expanding daily. It's also a collective grief, a worldwide loss that physically isolated, though many of us have to be, a lot of other people are in one way or another also mourning, end quote. And so this again ties in to how the situation is completely appropriate to Bardo tenants because we're in the Bardo, you know, like, I'm not sure if I mentioned this in this program or not, so I apologize. We're in the Bardo of dying right now. We're, we've lost our old way. Um, we're hanging out in this helpless kind of groundless uncertain space, which creates all this anxiety and also is revelatory of our kind of expectation for solidity and constancy which is not inherent to the fabric of reality. Um, this is what ego wants the world to be because that's what ego is, or ego seems to be. It imputes its qualities upon the world. So it's kind of constancy, stability, continuity. And so when that rug of reality is pulled out, it's particularly offensive to the egoic structure. And if we see it as such, we can see it as an opportunity to, to challenge ego's structure it, its machinations and also the way it um, really traps us into unhealthy ways of relating. And so the mourning that many of us are feeling, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, 
is this loss, this kind of bartle of dying, this grief to um, reified ways of being. And if we can see this as an opportunity, as a, as a revelatory occasion to see how in fact do we handle this, this open space, then we can really transform this into an opportunity. And so there's a great deal to say about this. I can perhaps leave it at that for now and use it as a seed for a conversation today. But what I'm immediately reminded of is really another famous uh, statement from the master of the one-liners, right? Trungpa Rinpoche. This guy's, this guy's got so many of them. This one's quite famous and completely applies. And it goes as follows. I'm sure you, some of you heard it where he says, the bad, the bad news is you're falling through space without a parachute. The good news is there is no ground. And so that's really the nature of reality altogether. I mean, we, we are in free fall. Um, and it is out of our fear of that, that paradoxically we create ground. It's such an interesting kind of bind that we put ourselves in. But so the invitation really for, for practitioners, you know, warriors that are really willing to take a hard look is that when you have these feelings of mourning, of helplessness, of groundlessness, Try to stay in that furnace. Try to stay in those experiences. And in so doing, you purify them. They will no longer be lodged into your subconscious body-mind matrix. Um, because if you don't do that, and, and that's really the double whammy here, because if one relates to what's happening now with skillful means, this is a profound opportunity for transformation. But if we don't, it can, it can be a, a, an equally kind of horrific opportunity to just reestablish or attempt to reestablish old conventional ways, which aren't working, right? Um, and so everything depends on appropriate relationship to what's happening. And that's why these teachings are so helpful because they can, they can arm us with an alternative narrative, a choice where we don't have to follow the road less traveled. We can follow a truer path. And so the invitation just to, to, to reiterate, and then I'll open it up for comments, questions, and the like, as we usually do, is any unwanted experience, which right now the world is really presenting a ton, stay with that feeling. Um, cremate the experience while you live it, as Suzuki Roshi says, right? You know, be a good bonfire. Don't be a smoky fire. We like to smoke. We like to dilute our experience. But uh, in so doing, we unwittingly throw those experiences deep into our subconscious body-mind matrix and there they percolate as these abscesses, these samskaras, literally, literally tying our subtle body into knots. Um, and then exerting their insidious influence on our so-called conscious lives. But eventually that stuff, of course, it has to come up. It has to come up. Um, but why put it down there in the first place? Stay with it, as bright as it is. You know, in the, in the Bardo literature, this is what's referred to as staying with the bright lights. This is the bright light unwanted experience. Um, so don't put your sunglasses on, don't run for the shade, try to stay in this blast furnace of experience and purify it as you actually experience it. So that's my little riff for today. That's just to seed us. And then as usual, now's the time when I love, love, love to hear from you all. Questions, comments, challenges, offerings and the like. So please, this is my favorite part. Great. Uh, the first question is coming from Ted. Uh, Ted, you have the audio to ask your question. Thanks, Andy. Hey, um, I'm, I'm finding myself in a loop uh, 
of um, trying to figure out where memory is stored. When I'm doing my lucid dreaming, if I don't write it down when I have it, even if I write a snippet down, um, that helps. If I, and I, I find that I'm having very vivid dreams and I say to myself, oh, that's so obvious, I will remember that one. And right. then, of course, morning comes and it's gone. Right. And so, or, or something, um, you know, I was thinking of something the, the other day about an experience I had four or five years ago and there was a detail that I just could not remember. And then about a day later, it, the memory came up of what that item was. And so with the, the, the Mahamudra practice, you know, you're, you're looking for these thoughts. And where I'm struck, struggling is I'm trying to figure out where those thoughts are stored. Sure. Okay. And I'm having difficulty resting when I, in what I cannot find. Yeah. Well, you know, a couple of things here, my friend. Um, there's two ways to work with this sort of thing. One is, in fact, to be the investigative reporter and find out where these things are coming from. That's a very fruitful thing. And I'll give you some suggestions of how to work with this and, and some information from both science and psychology and spirituality. Um, so I'm going to come back to that in just a second. That's completely viable what you're, what you're working with. But what also is just as viable, Ted, as you probably know, is just allowing whatever arises to completely self-liberate. Um, in many ways, that's the most important practice. That um, if you simply just allow the thought to play out, no matter where it comes from, um, it becomes utterly, completely non-problematic. And in many ways, that's the most important practice. With that said, bracket it off. Where these things come from, there's, a, again, a number of different ways to say this. You know, so let's just say briefly, just get it out of the way. Neurologically, and then I'll also tie this into dream memory, because dream memory is a little bit different. There's a reason why dream memory fades so fast. Um, in fact, studies have shown, I think within, I don't know what the exact number is, like 90 seconds. I know, again, I don't know the exact number, but within a very, very brief period of time, memories are erased from dreams. And there's an evolutionary reason for that. Because otherwise, if these dream memories were lodged with the same kind of durability as your waking memories, it could be uh, challenging when one conflates dreaming experience with waking experience. And this is evolutionarily perhaps not the, the most advantageous thing to do. And so um, dream scientists say that one reason we don't remember dreams is because it can be somewhat problematic if these dreams become conflated with real life experience. But that's a different story. In neurological terms, dreams are stored, short-term dreams are stored in the hippocampus. Um, and then interestingly enough, when we go to sleep, um, the dreams are transferred from short-term memory to the long-term storage hard drive, which is the neocortex. And in fact, interestingly enough, sleep facilitates that transmission, which is why if you really want to work with memory, like with contemplation practices and the like, one of the best things you can do is take frequent naps because they literally help with this digestion and metabolism of memory. 
I do this all the time. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly reading and studying and I take a lot of power naps. And I, I started doing this in my really long retreat, just somewhat intuitively. I thought it was like cheating, interrupting my practice and my study. But I realized 20 years later, after I started studying the science behind it, that it's actually the way to more fully incorporate the material. Parenthetically, um, conversely, if you have a really traumatic experience, try to stay up for as long as you can, because they will, that, that will actually prevent the transfer from hippocampus to the neocortex, and therefore prevent the lodging of things like PTSD. So neurologically, that's the way it works. In terms of uh, you know, like spirituality and um, subtle body stuff, memories are stored in the subtle body. And they're also stored in the gross body. And, and this is why there's so, such interesting data around this, Ted, where you probably read it, where organ transplants, right? The recipients of organs uh, will often start to report dreams and memories that are not theirs, that are actually resonant with a donor. And interestingly enough, of all the organs, the ones that, that carry the biggest transplant, literally change of heart, are heart transplants. I mean, how interesting is that? Um, and so memory, you know, memories is stored in the unconscious mind. According to Candace Pert, a, a psychoneuroimmunologist and others, your body is your unconscious mind. So it's stored in your body. In spiritual terms, as you know, it's stored, the deepest memories are stored in the Alia Vijnana, right? The eighth consciousness, literally the storehouse consciousness. And so, you know, this is a way to answer your question using a more kind of integrated approach that so you have these different strands, where does this stuff come from? Um, I'm not sure where else you want to run with this on that, but you know, it's, it's very interesting to talk about where these things actually do arise, but you know, perhaps more uh, fruitful practices in conjunction with that is what I mentioned earlier. Just allow the arising to occur and um, you know, don't worry so much about where it all comes from, but they both have a really valid approach. So something like that, is that helpful? Yeah, I, the, I, I'm trying to do the just letting it be and self-liberate. And that, that's what I'm struggling with. Yeah, don't struggle with it. That's the key. Just, just let it be. It's, it's actually, it's called non-distracted non-meditation, which is why as human doings, and we're not human beings, we're human doings. This is the art of non-doing. In fact, it's really, I, I still do this sometimes when people ask me, oh, what do you guys do at your meditation center? <laughs> Sometimes I'll say, oh, we do nothing, but we do it really well. <laughs> Doing nothing is really hard to do. In fact, it's the hardest thing to do um, because we're not human. Again, we're not human beings, we're, we're human doings. And so um, open, relax, open, relax, just on the spot, let, let uh, cut the narrative, you know, just continue to open. And then of course the stuff just continues to rise. It's, it's not a problem, it's just the play, right? Lila, Ropa. It's just to shine the play of the mind. That's just what the mind does. The mind just plays, it just thinks. Thoughts are never, ever, ever the problem. They're, you know, like I mentioned, thoughts are just the children of your mind. That's just what children do. Inappropriate relationship is the problem. So the practice there, something comes up, you get sucked into it, that's a moment of non-lucidity. You smile at it, you laugh at it. Oh, wow, here's another expression of my virtuosity and mindlessness, my virtuosity and non-lucidity. Well, give yourself a break, man. I mean, you know, the default mode until we enter a spiritual path, there isn't an alternative narrative until we enter a spiritual path. The default mode is the constant practice of non-lucidity or the constant pra practice of mindful, uh, mindlessness. 
So we're really good at it. And so when you sit in meditation, you're really, you're, you're, you're bearing the fruits of all your non-lucid practice. And so smile at it and just say, oh my God, look, look at it. It's actually in Sanskrit, it's called chattamkara, which is a quality of wonder and amazement. It's like, oh my God, even though there isn't one, oh my God, this is amazing. Look at what my mind is doing. And then joyfully celebrate that. That's just your children playing. But don't indulge it. That's the key. Good. Feel well, it, see you. it, but don't. Thank you it. very much. Good to see you, my friend. Stay healthy. Yeah, you too. Okay. Great. Um, next up is Myra. Myra, all my, all my dear friends. Myra. <laughs> You're so sweet. <laughs> I love seeing you guys. Really, it just makes me smile. From Detroit. From Detroit. Hey, did I ever tell you my story, Myra? Okay. I, I'm, I was, I'm outside of the house. I can you, can you hear me? Okay, go ahead, go ahead. I'll tell you my story later. Um, you were trying very, some very fast balls last time <laughs> in your um, last hangout. Are you hearing me? I can hear you, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I can, I can, I can't hear you. Oh, no. I can okay. hear you. So, um, you were, you mentioned, Okay, there's one thing that you said among many things is that um, if you wanted to see your future, just watch your dreams, what you're dreaming right now. And that was such a loaded statement. Uh, Not quite that I said, think but... that, Yeah, that I think that because there are so many different kind of dreams and I think that we only hear that from you and don't put it in the context of everything that you teach. It, it was just like a social statement. Um, would you like to say more about that? Yeah, I would. Context? I would, because it's not exactly what I said. Um, and again, I don't remember everything, um, but two things come to mind, and then I'll right. come back to the dream thing. One is, and this is from Padmasambhava, right? You know, he says where if you want to see your future lives, look at your present actions. If you want to discover okay. your pre previous lives, look at your present circumstance. So that's one thing. I, I, I'm quite certain I did not say, if you want to see your future, look at your dreams. What I probably meant to say there, because this is not resonant with my um, usual presentation of these sorts of things, is that dreams um, can be, you know, the moniker for, for dream yoga, right, is the measure of the path. Dreams can reveal to you in a general way, not a specific way. Dreams can reveal to you in a general way how you're going to do in the bardos, not necessarily in, in your future lives. Because, oh, got it. It's, because it's revealing to you how your mind is going to manifest free from sensory constraint, free from body, where basically, you know, again, if you're not lucid in the dream, if you're not taking control over the dream, what takes control? What runs the dream? Your habits, your karma. Same thing happens in the bardo. If you don't become lucid in the bardo, what takes control of the bardo? Same thing. Your habits, your karma, which is why, again, the master of the one-liner, Trunk Parimpache, once very famously said, what is it to the answer to, to the question, what is it that reincarnates your bad habits? <laughs> your bad habits. So if you want to know your future lives, look at your habits. Look what you literally, it's a, a double wonderful play, a double entendre. Look at what you inhabit right now. 
those states of mind that you inhabit right now, those are the portenders of your future lives. And so in that respect, to some degree, yes, you can gain an intimation, not just in your dreams, but in your life. I mean, if you're a really angry person, constantly complaining, constantly pissed off, you're living in a psychological hell realm. That will become an ontological realm for you after you die. If you live with tremendous generosity and kindness and goodness, you will actually, that good habit, that good karma, will then be an omen, a good omen, for where you will take rebirth after you die. So I think the, the overarching um, teaching here really is the altogether powerful line from Kabir, remember, what is found now is found then. Um, and so if you're really non-lucid to what's happening now, you're going to be non-lucid not only in, in the dream, but also in the death state. If you have particular propensities now, they'll manifest in the dream, they'll also manifest in, in the death state. And so, you know, you're a smart um, logician. <laughs> this just makes total sense. This is mechanics. This is causality. This is ca uh, ca um, karma, cause and effect. And this is really good news or bad news. It's really good news. If you know about this, you start to change your habits and you can therefore take control. It's not so good news if you don't know about it because then your, your habits just continue to do what they do. They just run roughshod over you and they will hurl you ad infinitum endlessly, endlessly, endlessly from thought to thought, dream to dream, life to life until you wake up to the process. Why should it stop? It's not going to stop. If this is like the physics of the mind. These are immutable laws of reality. Um, and so by understanding these laws, we can start to establish a more sane relationship to them and actually start to transform them. So I find this terribly exciting. I mean, this is really good news. It's like, hey, I am the one that's paving my rebirth. I am, by what I do now, the way I think, act, and in, in move in this world, I'm creating the trajectory for not only my dreams, but my, my death journey and thereafter. This is, this is a, you know, this, this inner notion of empowerment. This is a real Wong and Abhisheka. This is an empowerment that gives you tremendous control over what happens by, you know, gaining some sense of control of what's happening now. I think that's pretty cool. Beautiful. Thank you. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thanks, Myra. Um, the next question is coming from Joseph. Joseph, Joseph. you have the audio to ask your question. Hi there. Can oh, you hear me? oh, wait, I, I, wait Joe, I, got a new, I got a new riff for you. Okay, bud. Can you no. hear me? Okay. Yeah. Can you hear me? Okay. okay. Yep. So I have to share the story, right? So I always, my <laughs> dear friend, Joe, I keep, I keep saying he's, he's one of the best golf instructors in the world. And you want, you want to know why? because I, I took a handful of golf lessons with him and he took my handicap down from a 50 to a 49. And for anybody to take one stroke off my handicap, it has got to be the best golf instructor in the world. You are funny. You're a funny guy, <laughs> funny guy. So, so I, I had a couple of things. Um, one is for fun. Um, I had uh, two dreams last night. Now, it, being in this situation is a lot like being in retreat. It really, yeah. it really is. And, um, and dreams are very connected to what you're going through. Yeah. So we, I've been, uh, my wife and I have been binging a uh, TV show called The Durrells in Corfu. It's uh, a wonderful, wonderful thing on, 
from Masterpiece Theater. And so, so last night I found myself giving one of the characters in the TV show a golf lesson, cool. which, tur which turned into a Kudo lesson. So that was, that was one. And then this morning it was, uh, I had to go out and get some things and I kept running into people who weren't social distancing or wearing their masks. And I kept trying to say, get away from me and trying to find a place to park that wasn't near anything. It was just like being out there. So um, it gets very, it gets, when you're isolated like this and in retreat, as you know, Andrew, yeah. it gets very, the dreams and waking experience get very, very close together. Absolutely. Very close together. Absolutely. But I, I wanted to, a, a couple of quick things. One, sure. um, the teacher that I trained with at Cornell University in, from 1968 to 72, okay. invented the term power map. Really? His name, his name is James Moss, M-A-A-S. And he invented the term power nap. Oh, he, he did a tremendous amount of sleep research. Awesome. So, um, and, I, and I recently got back in touch with him after 40 years or so. Oh, I didn't the, know that. The other thing is you, you mentioned heart transplants. Right. And um, my father was a very uh, contracted, uh, armored kind of person. Physician too, right? He had, he, had a, he had a heart problem and had to have open heart surgery mm -hmm. and have a stent put in. And afterwards, I asked him about it, and he said that was the most horrific experience he ever had. If it happens again, he's not going to do it. He'd rather die. Wow. wow. So it was the literal opening your heart, and it, and he was so contracted and armored against doing that wow. against opening up that the so i really connected with what you said about the physical and the spiritual and psychological all they're not separate spheres they're not, they're not, they're separate. not separate spheres yeah. and and uh, the last thing was that something that i shared with you uh, about complaint oh yes please yeah please yeah that's with great everybody. And, yeah and and um, I love what you're teaching about f feel what it is that you don't want to be experiencing mm -hmm. as, as the complaint. But that, that's for us complaining or, you know, complaining, as, as I said, complaining to ourselves or actually complaining to others doesn't really matter. But then what do you do with complaints that come to you? Right. And, and how do you deal with all of the rawness and roughness and rough edges and, you know, people have turned from teddy bears into porcupines. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and, and all this stuff coming at you and it reminded me of a one-liner from Trump Rinpoche. Yeah. And that was when you encounter someone spewing that kind of, what feels like totally garbage at you, that there's always intelligence there. And so to sort through and, and try to find the intelligence, but boycott the neurosis. Yeah, beautiful. And the word boycott is really important there because boycott doesn't mean suppress, it doesn't mean ignore, it doesn't mean try to make believe it isn't there. It, it, it's what you do when you 
you boycott a store, it's uh, I'm not shopping there anymore. Yeah. It's that you you're not buying in literally Beautiful. shopping. You're not yeah. buying in to that those logics. But yeah. underneath the communi the the urge of communication, there is some intelligence. That's so really I just wanted to share no, that Joseph. Again, that's really beautiful. And in fact, what what I was thinking when you were saying that, and it's beautiful the way you came back to this issue of gifting, because what it came to my mind is is this kind of contemplation that if somebody gives you a gift and you don't accept it, to whom does it belong? It's just hanging out in space. Let it fall flat. Don't give it a place to land, you know? So be, be like a, you know, really, if I put my hand up to the sun, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's really something like a billion neutrinos a second are streaming through my hand. And because they don't have a place to land, I, I don't really feel them. And so in a very real way, um, be open to it, but don't give it a place to land. Don't accept it. And then it just falls flat. And so that's a fantastic contribution, my friend. Cool. Yeah, we got to get together again. I want to get my handicap down to 48, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I'll, get, I'll give you one of those putts, and that should okay. take care of it. Just, oh, that's, that's, that's a gimme. Pick it up. Nice and, to see you. Did you ever, I had to go, I had to leave before the last one. Did you ever do the crying meditation? No, we haven't done the crying meditation yet. Uh, it's a really powerful oh, I hope practice. you will. Yeah, I, I learned it from my dear friend, Zach Stein. I, I was blown away with it. Um, so thank you. I'll, I'll bring it up. Nice to see you again, Joe. Appreciate it. Great. Yeah. Uh, okay, next up is uh, Kate. Kate, you have the audio to ask your question. Hello, Andrew. Hey, how are you? Where, are you? where are you from? I'm from Newport, Rhode Island. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. Are you, are you like, you're like in the kids room or something, huh? That's great. Yeah, I teach online. So as you can see, I'm in my classroom. <laughs> oh, that's, all, that's awesome. I love it. Yeah, it's pretty fun. Um, I'm actually reading one of your articles right now, What is the Best Way to Prepare for Death? Um, or I just read it for an online class I'm doing with Turgar. Oh, nice. Just um, been awesome. It's a Bardo course. So, yeah, I'm actually, I'm giving a talk for you guys um, May 26th, I think. I know, I'm registered. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Thank you. Um, okay, so I have a practice question. Mm -hmm. um, I'm doing Nundro, and I know you have a lot of practice experience, so I thought I would ask you okay. about this. Um, I'm doing Vajrasattva. Yep. And I'm finding that I'm getting really tired when I'm practicing. Yep. And I'm trying to figure out how to move through it. Like yeah. I'll do one mala and I'm like ready to go to sleep. Sometimes right. I end up taking a nap um, afterwards. So I don't know, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know how to work with the sleepiness, the frustrations. It was like so active for me. Right. I was doing something and now I'm sitting. Yeah. And so how to yeah. work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, totally. You know, uh, for those of who may be unfamiliar with this term, Nundro is literally preliminary, preliminary practice. There are four sets of 100,000, actually three, and then one million recitations. And, and the first one is 100,000 frustrations. And then the second one um, is uh, 100,000 recitations of the Vajrasattva mantra, which is a purification mantra, the sound of purity. And I, ha I have to tell you, I chuckled because I had a very similar experience. Uh, you know, I, I did these uh, 100,000 Ps, like, I mean, in pretty quick order, like six months or something. And, and when I finished, I, I slogged into Vajrasapa. I felt like a Porsche running into a quicksand bog. It just went, foom, 
And it was like, oh God. And so I really bogged down with Vajrasapa as well. It was like, oh, you gotta be kidding me. And so a couple of things happened here <laughs> that are actually quite, I think, interesting. Um, ego is a very interesting, even though it doesn't exist, the, the kind of structure of the egoic habit network is very clever and it can um, pick up a number of very interesting obstacles. And one of these obstacles um, it can in fact be lethargy, apathy and fatigue, um, where you, know, you, you start doing this thing and it's just like, you just can't stay awake. I mean, you're just like, I just, I, really, it's like Pulna Prampache says, he, he kind of nails it. He says, you know, I just prefer to be stupid. <laughs> It's, it's fantastic at a certain point, you know, at a certain point, especially if you do things like dream yoga, this is where this teaching really comes into play. Because in the dream, in the nocturnal practices, sooner or later, um, for sure, these practices will reveal your passion for ignorance. And so, you know, we exist along, the way to, to play with this, Kate, is we exist along the spectrum of identity. And this is why this stuff is so helpful to understand. Um, you've heard me riff on it probably, you know, we go from beast to the Buddha, right? From dirt to divinity. And so the, the, the Buddha, the divine part of you is on the path, is doing the nendro, is like, wow, yeah, I love this stuff. And then you still have the caboose. You have the, the little bit of the beast back here. You have the devolutionary luggage rack that's back there either whispering things like, oh, you can't do this. You don't have enough time. You're not smart enough. Sometimes it throws in a little bit of fear. And then other times it just says, you know, again, don't get too anthropomorphic here. But basically, other times it just says, I'd rather just go to sleep. Because <laughs> that's the archetype of the egoic agenda, is ignorance, the ignorance of sleep. And so the thing to do is exactly what you're doing now, is just laugh at it, smile at it, and say, wow, look. Again, it's this tatamkara, this wonder of like, look how amazingly sophisticated my ego is to just basically say, you know, I'm just going to freaking zone out. And so the way to work with this, that's the view. Practically a couple things. One is sooner or later, that, that's the samskara being activated. Sooner or later, you will burn through it. Um, but until you do, it can, be, it can be, you know, kind of a downer. So a couple things you can do. Um, if you're actually doing the practice, tighten your posture, raise your gaze, take a couple deep breaths. Don't hyperventilate, but a couple deep inner um, um, respirations kind of infuse your body with lung prana, maybe hold them for a few and then expel. If you still find yourself really, really soggy, um, put them all aside, do a ninefold breath uh, purification practice, either classic pranayama or a ninefold expelling. If you've done this, and I don't know if, if Mingi Rinpoche does this, but you've probably heard it. You, what you do is you conjoin three breaths with, yeah, with yeah. yeah, the visualization of passion, it, it, getting rid of it, the visualization of aggression, getting rid of it. And then the last three is a feeling sense of, of getting rid of the final clasha of ignorance. And so you just kind of blow out all the cylinders. And then if you do all that um, and it's really not working, then you get up, you go for a little walk, um, you invigorate, you come back, take your mala with you. You don't have to do this in your shrine room. Take your mala with you and walk around. And then if that doesn't work, um, take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> just crash out, just crash out. And you may be surprised 
the, the recitation, some very interesting studies. Again, this is not metaphysical momo jumbo. These are sleep scientists. You can actually continue to practice. And, and this is com completely resonant with Yogacara thought. Thich Nhat Hanh writes about it. It's completely um, in the literature, both spiritually and actually um, in the neuroscientific community, sleep science, is that you, you will actually continue to do your practice while you're sleeping and dreaming. And studies have shown that people come out, they will actually become, they, they have this kind of magical level of proficiency because their subconscious mind is still working at this level. Um, what Thich Nhat Hanh talks about the gardener, the eighth consciousness is still active. Even though the sixth consciousness is offline, you know, you're no longer awake, so that's offline, the gardener is still working. And so it's, there's a little bit of magic going on. There's this stealth help thing going on. Um, and so don't be afraid to take a nap. There could be some you know, incorporation, literally incorporation taking place by kind of capitulating to that. So these are just some skill sets you can use. I, I had this exact same thing, not so much with Vajrasattva, but when I was in my three-year retreat, I had exactly the same issues and I, I just like toughed it out. It was just, it was just so painful. And finally, I just said, F this. And I, I was wearing robes, I threw my robe over my head. And that's when I started doing these really incredible like 20, 20 minute power naps. Um, and it, it was a total game changer. I mean, I literally, I'd wake up, I'd be clicking the mantra. I mean, it was just like, I was just still back on track. So somewhere in there. Yeah. And yeah. also, if, can I just ask you one more thing, if that's okay? I don't want to sure. take up too much time really <laughs> to that, just okay. real quick. But I find that also my sleep is affected. And sometimes I feel like I just don't get a good night's sleep if I'm, if I'm practicing for a while. You know, I feel like I'm just like on the periphery for a lot of my sleep. Like it's not a deep sleep or I'm having experiences during, you know, sleep, like in between dream, I'll kind of recognize the gap, you know, and I'll, and, and how do you, I'm not lucid dreaming. I can't, I'm not doing that, yeah, but about that. remember the so, dream. And so how is it, how is it, is it adversely affecting your day? Are you tired during the yeah, day? Yeah, I feel tired during the day sometimes, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Again, that's not at all uncommon. You know, part of what's happening here is, you know, you're, you're inserting a lot of light into your mind, into your heart. And so there, there can definitely be times when this will affect your sleep. And it, these are, all these are called nyam, um, med meditation experiences. There are many, many different types of these nyams. And the most important with any of them is the classic instruction um, you, you just keep going uh, because sooner or later, the samskaras that are creating this, they're going to burn out and you'll find yourself on the other side of it. And so whenever we have really positive experiences, don't attach to them, just keep going. When we have so-called negative experiences, same thing, don't attach to those, just keep going. And the constancy, the steadiness is what's going to uh, allow you to progress. And then also, you know, this is where it does get helpful. If you haven't explored the nocturnal practices, this is where some familiarity with things like liminal dreaming, not even necessarily lucid dreaming, liminal dreaming, hypnagogic spaces, hypnopompic spaces. Understanding this can be really helpful in situations like this, because then when you're in the, you know, the nighttime experience and you're going through this, you'll have a better roadmap of what's going on and you'll actually be able to bring that onto the path. And then similar to um, the other comment about, you know, uh, I think Ted's question about the sense of uh, amazement, 
just look at the whole thing with this kind of witness amazement. Just like, wow, this is so interesting. And when you get contracted and you start to feel like, oh my God, this is just totally messing with you. You'll notice how that usually gets self-serving, right? It feeds on itself and then it gets a little bit out of control. So for these types of things, the best thing to do is just open your heart even bigger. Allow these children to do what they're doing. And then eventually, you know, it's all going to just purify itself. It's just the nature. Everything is impermanent. And eventually this will, this too shall pass. But until then, it can be a little bit interesting. It's not bad. It's just interesting. And so don't reify it. Don't make it more solid than it is. Just let it play itself out. It will go away. Thank you so much, yeah. That's so helpful. Thank you. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> See you. Out. Great. Thanks, Kate. Um, next up is Deborah. Deborah, you have the audio to ask your question. Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah. Hi. Okay. Hi. Hi. Um, I, first of all, I'm a, I, I live in Guatemala, but I'm originally from Detroit. So if you want to do your Detroit riff, you can do it now. <laughs> okay. Uh, maybe I will. Yeah. Maybe after you ask your question, I'll give you my Detroit riff. Okay. Well, I, I, the, the, there are a couple of a couple of things. Um, one of them feels somewhat like a distraction question because it doesn't matter. Um, and the question originally was, I've heard you say two things: what reincarnates, and one thing you said was the mind reincarnates. You know, you're left with nothing but everything. You lose everything, and you're left with the mind. And the other thing is what you said: um, you're left with your bad karma, your bad habits. Which I'm guessing might be you're kind of left with your good karma too. Yep. Um, but anyway, those two things I don't quite sure. know how to put them together. Okay, good. Well, let me share my Detroit thing and then I'll answer your question. So, okay, <laughs> so, so I was this is for Myra as well. So, I was in Paris, ah, this is like 40 years ago, a long time 30 years, and I was trying to book a flight back to um to the States, to, to Detroit. And I'm at this travel agency and, and I keep talking about, yeah, I wanna get this flight to Detroit, Detroit. And after about two minutes, this somewhat flustered travel agent, this French lady looked at me and, and ah, she goes, aha, de toi, de toi. So she had to like completely correct, you know, you know, it's not Detroit, it's de toi. So for all de of those, de toi. So yeah, so I, I'm from de toi. Um, but in terms of your question, it's, hold on a second, I'm getting, I went for a run, so I'm getting a little cramped. Um, what reincarnates, yeah, this is obviously a huge uh, question. Right. And one way to really talk about it in terms of both of the things I said is when, when I use the word mind or when this, the wisdom traditions use the word mind, this is a cashment term. Um, Again, it's what's sometimes it's called multivalent. It, it's, a, it's a word that has so many different meanings depending on context. And so in order to answer your question, you have to really refine your understanding of this thing, which isn't a thing, of course, it's a process called mind. And so there are so many different ways to do that. Um, the type of mind that your question is, is pointing to is what's called SEM, S-E-M. This is the kind of confused, conditioned mind that really is the repository of our, our conventional experiences. 
and um, pretty much where we operate out of or from until we wake up to the true nature of mind, which of course, you know, is Rigpa. And so the difference between Sam and Rigpa is enormous on one level. Um, it's a difference between samsara and nirvana. I mean, the world seen from Sam is samsara. The world seen from the perspective of Rigpa is nirvana. And so you're talking more about Sam. And, and the way that, you know, kind of titrate out your question is that when we ask the question and attempt to answer it, what is it that reincarnates? Well, it, it depends on, on where you target this thing called mind because habits are lodged in a certain dimension. And then the more subtle you go, then eventually all those habits, eventually, they're, they're at least temporarily erased during the whole death journey. I mean, that's what constitutes what's called the, the bardo dharmata. That's the bardo of rigpa. Sam is temporarily put on hold. So um, maybe you can uh, ping it a little bit back at me in terms of where you want me to run with this. But there, there are a number of different ways to talk about this kind of, it's called santana, the stream that continues through. And so on one level, all, you know, depending on where you live, uh, abide in the journey of death, there are certain things that are continuing. The farther you go down, those things become gradually discontinuous. Those rougher aspects of mind, they start to fall away. They start to fall away. They start to fall away. Eventually, all habits even fall away. That's when you've gone through the, what I playfully talk about is the chipper, right? You've gone through the chipper where all these rough course elements are, are dissolved. They're just, they've been shredded away, left behind temporarily. And then what continues is, 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 is basically this um, indestructible continuum of mind, this rigpa. Um, and because this, this is something that's always present because it's utterly formless, it's not subject to anything called death. It has, it has no traction with death or death has no traction with it. So, you know, this question is a, a really big one and um, I'm not sure where else, if any, you want to run with it, but that's- No, that's good. It's a, it's, a, it's a really good start for me to, to separate what I think of mind and yeah. other aspects of mind. It's a monumental question. And again, Deborah, if you want to learn about this, you know, one of the favorite, my favorite kind of doctrinal templates for this, I say this all the time, are the Yogacara teachings, um, especially in the eighth, conscious, eighth consciousnesses. This is a very sophisticated way of looking at the dimensions of mind. But there are others. This is one that just has a lot of applicability in the Bardos. Okay. Can I, can I, can I ask one more question? Sure. It, it, might, it might be yes or no if you're, you know. Um, do I need to go through the, you know, do I need to take on a practice of 100,000 prostrations and all of that? I don't, I don't have that in my background. And, um, no, fundamentally, you know, here, here, no, here, Fundamentally, again, like I said at the outset, and I'm, actually I'm not being too smart-assy here. Fundamentally, you don't have to do a thing. You just, right. have to do, you just have to do that really, really well. But that's really hard to do. Right. So on one level, yeah. that's why there's all these different yanas, all these different vehicles. On the highest level, non-distracted non-meditation, you don't have to do a thing. But most people can't do that. And so therefore, there's all these other really skillful ways to kind of purify and, and process things. So you actually can get to that final point where you realize, holy crap, I didn't need to do any of this. Um, so it really, <laughs> you don't have to do prostrations, you don't have to do dream yoga, you don't have to do any of this stuff. But they're, they're there for a reason. These practices are really yeah. 
technologies that are there for a reason. If they don't speak to you, you don't have to do them. No, they do. That's why the Buddha taught. They're beginning to whisper to me. So uh, that's that's what's happening now. What was it? I'm sorry, the last thing you said, I didn't hear it. So the, it's all beginning to whisper to me. So, oh, you know, which is why I'm even asking the question, because it's coming my, it's coming close. You know, there's there's a, a teacher who comes to Guatemala to do uh, retreats, Lama Mark Weber, and he and his um, Dharma, I, his Sangha also. It's a Mahamudra practice. So I've gotten, it's coming. Cool. Good for you. Yeah. Well, best of luck. Yeah. Stay healthy. Hmm? Stay healthy. Thank you. You too. Bye. Great. Thanks, Deborah. Okay. Next up is uh, David. David, you have the audio to ask your question. Hey, Andrew. David. How are you, my friend? I'm good. What's I have up? a question. So I have heard that the Tibetan Book of the Dead has a subtitle, which is Liberation Upon Hearing. Yes, correct. That's part of it. I'll give you the whole title in a second. But that's So does that um, imply that there are liberations upon seeing, smelling, testing, um, t tasting, and touching? Correct. Cool. Correct. And, and who's, who's teaching those? It's a Nyingma teaching. Um, you will find it, um, Francesca Fremantle's absolutely seminal book, which I heard is now out of print, which is a really unfortunate thing. You can probably still get it from Shambhala Pub. Luminous Emptiness, Understanding the Tibetan Book of the Dead. She talks, it's one of the rare renderings of these Nyingma approaches to liberation. Um, so it's, and the full title, by the way, and this is why you can see when Evans Wentz first translated the Tibetan Book of the Dead at this point some 65 years ago, why they went with that title. Because the Bardo Tudul Chenmo, that's the Tibetan, literally means, and you can see why this doesn't sell, the great liberation through hearing in the between, right? I mean, what a great sexy title that is, right? Mm -hmm. The great liberation through healing, hearing in the between, the between being the Bardo. Mm. That doesn't sell. The Tibetan Book of the Dead is sexy, it sells. Um, so ah. it's not just hearing, it's exactly as you said, the Nyingma tradition talks about the other sensory um, components of it. There you go, check out her book, she riffs on that. Awesome, ciao. You still there, Andy? Yeah, I'm still here, sorry, I had a mute on by accident. Oh, thanks for the question, David. Uh, next up is Debbie. Debbie, you have the audio to ask your question to Andrew. Hello, Andrew. Hi. My question is on dream yoga. Um, okay. I've been practicing for some time now, and only twice have I had um, where I've been aware I'm dreaming in the dream. Um, once I realized I had choice, I could do whatever I wanted, and I stopped and decided what I wanted to do. Right. Mostly what's been happening is increasingly I'm just aware I'm aware in the dream. Now, to me, this seems the same as saying, oh, I'm dreaming. Just, it's like my practice is just continuing of being aware when I'm in the dream state. Yeah, yeah that's fine. And so let me make sure I'm understanding what you're saying. 
So you find yourself aware in the dream state, but you're not engaging the dream. You're just simply letting the dream unfold and you're just aware that it's unfolding. Is that what you're saying? I think it's a little both. A little yeah. both. It depends on the situation. Sometimes it's just being aware and, and being curious about where it's going and what's going on. Yes, exactly. So, you know, the, the point is awareness itself, right? I mean, a, a lucidity is a code word for awareness. A lucid dream is an aware dream. And that, uh, that lucidity or awareness runs a vast spectrum um, from barely lucid to hyper lucid. And also there's a, a vast variety of things you can, so to speak, do with lucidity. One of the things you can do is called a pellucid lucid dream or a witnessing lucid dream is you're simply just aware. You're aware of the fact that you're dreaming, but you just don't do anything with it. You just kind of watch the show. That's great. That's fine. That, that is in fact what you're suggesting. It's a quality of your med awareness meditation kind of naturally bleeding through into the dream state. So that's a good thing. You know, not all lucid dreams need to be engaged. There are certain, you know, there's a variety of spectrum of practices that you can, you know, engage in your dreams in a number of different ways, um, partly depending on the strength of your lucidity, partly depending on your you know, intentionalities, your motivations and the like. But these kind of pellucid or witnessing lucid dreams are, 100% viable, really cool thing to do. So good for you. I have another question okay. asking. Uh, I'd like your take on the difference or what you might suggest between doing lucid dreaming laying down versus sitting up. Sure. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, um, I recommend people experiment with them because like when I did my long retreat, you know, we slept sitting up in a little meditation box. It was initially it was really hard, but after a while I could see why we had to do that because it's super conducive to these nocturnal practices because it aligns the channels in certain different ways. So the classic postures for lucid dreaming, dream, especially dream yoga, as you know, is the sleeping mudra, you know, lying down on the right side. And by the way, studies have shown that for both men and women, it's the right side. There used to be this debate about, oh, the Nyingmapa say you lay on the left side for women, men on the right. Well, Stephen LaBerge and others, have, you know, this is a great power of science. They've done the studies, and the studies show that sleeping on the right side is definitely more efficacious. So you sleep on the right side. If you can, you can block off the right nostril. It's not that hard. There's lots of reasons for doing that. If you want me to go there, I can, but that's one option. The uh, other option that's even better, but usually people draw the line with this one, is sleeping sitting up. Um, that's the most ideal posture. But if you can't do it, do it on your right side. If you can't do that, then just do whatever works for you. You know, the, the trick with these practices is you don't want to be too tight with them because otherwise you'll just say, ah, screw this. You know, I'm not going to do this. So it's always a bit of a, down, a kind of a delicate dance between engaging in the practice, but not like trying too hard and becoming too heroic in it. But it sounds like from what you're doing that things are starting to cook. And again, that's a natural consequence of just your daily practice. I mean, daily meditation is the practice of lucidity and it does start to bleed through into the night. So that's cool. Good for you. Thank you. Yeah, welcome. Keep it up. Great. Thanks, Debbie. Okay, next up is Vicky. Uh, Vicky, you have the audio to ask. Oh, giving you the audio one second. Okay, Vicky, you have the audio to ask your question. Great. Hi. Hi. Um, I am, I've been doing, um, taking and sending for a while. Yeah. Um, 
but what I would really, I've read various people about it. I would love, so this is my overall question and then I'll say a few specific things. My overall thing is I would love you to rip, riff on Tonglen. <laughs> because you um, said recently that you start every, your meditation practice with 10 minutes of Tonglen, which I have been doing since I heard you say that, which has been wonderful. Good. I also hear you now talking about one minute Tonglen. And one then, breath. One breath. Oh, sorry, one breath, right. And at, also at the same time in the complaint meditation to just be with things. So I'm working with when do I just be with something and when do I welcome it and breathe it out? So anything yeah. you can say about all of that, I would love to hear. Sure. Well, you know, it's interesting. One of the, the great gifts of the, um, these wisdom traditions, and especially the Tibetan Buddhist thing, it's, it's one of the qualities that actually differentiates Tibetan Buddhism from most other schools, actually, is this vast, vast array of practices. I mean, there are so many skillful means. And so that's both a blessing and, and a curse. It's definitely more a blessing than a curse. But the so-called curse is sometimes there's so many items on the menu that you don't know what to order, right? <laughs> and so this is where you have to kind of play with them, see what resonates with you. you. You will eventually find that when you start to work with these practices enough in, in somewhat formal ways, in a, in a very real sense, they will start to work with you, which means the question you're asking will, be, will just somewhat be answered automatically by the situation. But I totally get what you're saying. You know, it's like all these different options. Do I do A, B, or C? On one level, that in itself is fantastic because it already provides you with an alternative narrative. It already provides you with a new way to relate to the situation. So that's number one is huge. Second part is then it's a little bit like, you know, at a certain point, what do I really want to eat on this menu? And, you, and you'll, you will find your way here. You will become your own guy where you do it enough. Sometimes you'll just notice it's like Tongwen really feels like the right thing to do right now. In other instances, it'll feel like, you know, I just need to settle with this. I need to stay with this in my body. And so there aren't really cookie, cookie cutter, cold, hard, fast rules here. And, and I think that may be a little bit frustrating for people in the West who sometimes feel like they need to be told what to do. I actually like that kind of freedom because it's like we have these types of options. And so I, I really do think that if you, if you play with these for a while, they're gonna start to play with you, so to speak. And you will find yourself more naturally just kind of slotting into appropriate responses. But what a wonderful problem this is, right? I mean, what a fantastic problem. I have all these wisdom tools I can use. What's the best one? Any of them is going to be just fantastic. Some may just have a little bit sweeter spot than the others. And eventually you, you will find what that is for you. Um, and it, it, it not only can be different from you to, uh, than another person, it can be different for you day to day. I mean, you may just find yourself in a particular kind of frame where, you know, Tong Lin just really feels like what is appropriate here. Trust that wisdom and go with that. Maybe sorry. an hour later. So can I say, I, I love that. But I, and I would love you to just riff about Tong Lin because when you talked about really it's the cosmos that's taking and sending that, I'd never heard that before. And I haven't seen any place where you've written about Tonglin, so you could tell me something that you've written if you want, or, but I would just love you to take two minutes to talk about Tonglin. 
Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, so as you, uh, you probably read some of Pema's stuff, I would suspect, so I don't need to re recap the whole thing. She's yep. one of the, the great authors on this topic. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, so much to say here. Fundamentally, you know, it's an incredibly powerful practice that also doubles as a bit of a litmus test for ego, because generally ego does not want to do this. It's, it's in the family of, of what um, comes from the Mahamudra tradition called reverse meditations that I teach a ton on. In the Bhadra literature, the reverse meditations are enormously powerful. Tonglen is not classically referred to as a, as a reverse meditation, but that's what it is. It fits into this kind of classifications of practices that are designed to somewhat thwart the egoic strategy. Because the egoic strategy is to bring in all the good and throw out all the crap. Here you're doing the opposite. And this is why it's an egoic litmus test, because, you know, very often the ego just doesn't want to do this. What do you mean I'm going to bring in the suffering of others? I mean, that's not, what he, that's not what I do. That's not the way I roll, right? That's just ego. So that's a larger structure thing. If you really start to tease about the, the, the four stages of Tonglen, um, you know, the first phase, the absolute bodhicitta. So Tonglen works with both absolute and relative truth, um, with wisdom and compassion, absolute or relative bodhicitta. Absolute bodhicitta is where you start. You start with this flash. And if you don't know what it is, you just fake it. You know, you just open. That's, that's an invitation to reconnect to the empty nature of reality. The fact, and this is where the whole idea that you're not breathing this in. If you didn't have step one, then it's all relative bodhicitta. Then it's pretty easy to think, oh my God, I'm just taking this in. But you start with the flash, the absolute bodhicitta, the emptiness part, because then your mind heart becomes so big that it, quote unquote, can contain anything. And so even though it's one small little flash, it's the most important. If you're a tantrika or sadhaka, this is referred, related to what's called the samadhi of suchness, om sabhava shuddha sadharvas, you know, that whole mantra thing. It's connected to that, where before you do a massive sadhana practice, you also create the groundless ground of emptiness. And so uh, on, these, on these level practices, this is actually pretty darn important because it, it, it sets the framework for the genius of the meditation that you're not doing it, the cosmos is doing it. And then somewhere in there, well, yeah, then I'm breathing it in and I'm breathing it out. Well, of course you are relatively, but not in an absolute way. You know, you, you're just, your memory has been jogged that you are actually a representative of reality. And, and setting that in motion completely changes the tenor of the practice. And it makes it a paramita, it makes it universal, it makes it transcendent. So I, I personally think that's super important and I don't think it's emphasized enough. You know, this is why the teachings on emptiness, which come from Mahayana, which is where this practice comes from, this is, this is applied emptiness teaching. Um, and that's why the teachings on emptiness are critical to really understand the nuances of Tonglen. As really, really every practice in Buddhism when you get down to it, every practice is informed by the teachings on emptiness, all of them, but this one in particular. Okay. Thank you so much. Welcome so much. Cool. Great. Thanks, Vicki. Okay, next up is Keenan. Keenan, you have the audio to ask your question. Oh, hi, Andrew. Hey, Keenan. Hi, uh, good to see you. Where, where are you from? Oh, I'm uh, right now in San Diego, California. I did a couple of uh, dream yoga programs with you here in LA and Albuquerque. Oh, nice. Uh, 
That was a few years back. Yeah, recognize your name. Oh, thanks. Didn't we didn't we have lunch together in, in We that? did. We did in Albuquerque. Yeah, but you didn't have a beard back then. I didn't know. This is quarantine beard. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you look familiar to me. Nice to see you again. Excellent. Yes, nice to see you. Yeah, thank you. It's always uh, good to good to hear you. And uh, so I, I was thinking of um, what question to ask you. I raised my hand quite a while ago. And uh, um, I guess uh, the questions I have, I'll just ask one, but they have to do mostly with this um, idea that you've touched upon a few times of doing nothing. And uh, I, I guess you've said a few things, but I would just like you to, to say, say something more. Because um, on one hand in the practices, um, in terms of understanding, uh, you know, there is the absence of space and time of the whole construct. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, there are the skillful means that seem to rely on the existence of that very framework. And um, I kind of sort of struggle with, with dancing between the two. I feel like at one hand, the my own understanding pulls me towards uh, relying on my conviction, or I should say relying on my understanding of the very absence of those frameworks and, and be with that. When you say those frameworks, Keenan, I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying. The frameworks of space and time and relative reality, is that what you're Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, like a quick example I can, I can, I can share is, uh, Today, what, at, at one point, what was coming to me is that, you know, each moment appears with its own uh, context. And immediately I can assume a certain past, uh, a chain of cause and effect associated with that and then act from that place. Right. Uh, but if I rely on my understanding, uh, depending on how deep that is, I feel the truth is that, that I can only rely on this, this particular context and I don't have to buy into uh, the chain of cause and effect and uh, and then act from there although it's not always possible or that reminder might not even be available right. um, so I guess not so much a question but since you have such a amazing repertoire of of practices and uh, what would you say to that in in the unfolding of the path yeah I mean what an interesting battery of, of comments and questions Keenan so um, whew, lots that comes to mind I mean, you know, on one level, let's just start with what you're finishing at the end, th this notion of causality. You know, I mean, basically you're, you're, you're playing with the relative and absolute truth, which is really important to understand and, and recognize and acknowledge on the path, because that is in fact what makes the path, the spiritual path different from like philosophy and everything else, is in fact the interjection of the absolute. Everything else is just relative. And so, um, right off the bat, that's what makes spiritual practices different from anything else, is they insert this foundational um, approach narrative of the absolute, um, which in this tradition is, is, again, there's a number of ways to talk about it, but foundationally it's the teachings on emptiness and luminosity, but basically emptiness. And so I'll, I will just say what comes to mind, and then you can direct me to see if this is what's landing with you or not. You know, from a relative perspective, we, we, we obviously abide in a world of, of karma, of causality. Um, it would be just ludicrous to deny that. Um, science is based on it. Everything that happens in the relative world is in fact based on it. Evolution is contingent on it. 
but at, at the more subtle refined levels, there is no causality. Um, and you can read about this not only in, in the philosophical, or the, I should say the spiritual traditions, but read the work of Martin Heidegger. I mean, he's an incredibly sensitive thinker, being in time where, where he, he talks beautifully, as does Nietzsche, in terms of how at a very subtle level, and for Buddhists, this is exactly a Western approach to what we talk about as Madhyamaka, that at a very, very deep, subtle level, there is no such thing as causality. There isn't even any becoming. There isn't no bardo becoming. There's no karma. There's what becomes utterly ineffable that we just talk about is the radiance, the shine, the play, that is absolutely not um, causally based. And, and so, again, I'm not quite sure where you want to run with this, but to me, they don't, you don't have to necessarily reconcile the two. You can allow yourself to hang out in that open space between them where they, they won't necessarily be reconciled, especially if you're looking at it from the framework of the relative point, because the relative will never grok the absolute. The absolute can grok the relative. It transcends but includes the relative. The relative cannot um, transcend it and include the absolute. In fact, it subsends it and excludes it. So what I might recommend is just hanging out in that bardo, that space, that gap between these two approaches and ways of looking at reality and, and just play with them both and, and realize that uh, you know, under ultimate fundamental refuge in the absolute, there is no causality there. It's, it's a breathtaking thing. Everything that arises, arises perfectly pure. You could say in this sense, independent. That's tricky when we talk about things like dependent origination, but everything arises perfectly pure in and of its own. If you really start to rest in that space, OMG, is that a view changer? Because then the world from that perspective is seen as perfectly pure. It's literally called threefold purity. It's just seen as divinity. It's seen as sacred. So, you know, we, you could say provisionally, you want to take ultimate refuge in that, in the tenets of the trikaya, that's called dharmakaya. But immediately you have to come back to this, this you know, relationship of that to relative truth. Because if you have one without the other, there's problems. If you have the relative without the, without the absolute, you get the shit show that we're seeing in the world right now. You're getting samsara. If you have the absolute without the relative, you get all these spiritual bypassing problems. You have to bring those together um, to whatever extent you can. And the, and the reason that is really important is because if, if you don't, the types of extremists, you know, we're all extremists in this regard, extremists, extremisms are born from either of those two. And so somewhere in this ambiguous, opaque, which eventually be even trans-conceptual because at a certain point what I'm saying just doesn't make sense conceptually. That's fine. Reality does not have to abide by conceptual tenets, right? Yeah. Don't let your concepts and your logic trap reality. Reality is much bigger than that. And so somewhere between those two tracks, you'll find your way, okay? Excellent. Yeah, thank read, you so read, much. Read Nietzsche, read Heidegger, and then read the Nagarjuna. Um, you know, read which, the, which was the last one? Nagarjuna. He's Nagarjuna. the master here. A, a classic text, the, the fundamental um, teachings on the middle way. Um, and if you send me an email, I can give you some actual specific text. In Sanskrit, it's the Mula Majamaka Karikas. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll message you the- email. Yeah, that'll blow your mind. That, that's a book my teacher Kempo Rinpoche said he wanted all his students to read that text at least 10 times. It's, it's a total game changer. Not easy, not an easy book, 
but it is beyond profound. So give her a call. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much. Yeah, I would just say that, uh, yeah, what you said about that, that being okay with that middle ground is what I find myself recently, uh, the last year or so struggling with yeah. is uh, just not trying anymore to, to make sense of it. Beautiful, beautiful. Good for you, my friend. Literally, stop making sense. I mean, who sang that, right? <laughs> da- right? David Byrne, stop making sense. Just be open to it. Be the wonder. And th- what, that little kind of phraseology, by the way, has profound repercussions. I, I won't get into it now, but we, we literally, literally make sense. Not Makes just sense. cognitively, but every sense faculty, every hearing, seeing, tasting, touching, constructs perception is construction we make sense and that's part of what the egoic structure is in fact both you know play on a word it's its job is to make sense so like wasn't it david Byrne, right talking heads stop making sense i think so yeah fantastic man excellent well look forward to speaking to you more i'll uh send you my email thank you yeah see you bud so maybe one or two more i want to finish at 2 30 if that's okay yeah great okay next up is sanjay Sanjay, you have the audio to ask your question. Great. Hello, Andrew. Hey, Sanjay. How are you, man? Doing good, thanks. Where are you uh, from? We, uh, Seattle, Washington. Yeah, I was going to say, you look familiar too. Did I meet you in Seattle? You did, yes. Uh, yeah. Briefly at uh, your Dream Yoga group, uh, sorry, Dream Yoga seminar in Alanda West last February. Yeah, you look familiar. So, cool. Yeah. Nice to see you again. Thanks, you too. Uh, my question is, uh, and you, you've, you've kind of ripped on it these last few questions, but I've waited all this time, so I'll just ask it anyway. Yeah, totally. Fire away. <laughs> um, I'm practicing Lojong right now, so a lot yeah. of ultimate bodhicitta practices. Yeah. Um, and I guess, and you really just talked about this, but basically, um, uh, let's see here. I understand how practicing relative, and then, of course, flashing on whatever understand you have of the ultimate nature and um, especially why practicing relative can help you understand that uh, primarily by letting go of fixed ways we see things and letting go of ego simply by being kind to others. It sort of just gets you out of your uh, self fixation. Um, I guess my question is uh, why is the ultimate in this sense, why is the ultimate bodhicitta? You know, why is there a sense of goodness wanting to help? Um, and I realize it's one of those kind of pretty lofty questions that you sort of just keep going and that maybe you just relax and it'll make sense. But right, so just to summarize what I'm saying, if I'm practicing relative bodhicitta, trying to think of others first, I, have, I can have experiences of letting go, you know, and I have experiences when I let go of, oh, things are emptiness. But in the sense of emptiness, if I'm experiencing some sense of space, right, some sense of emptiness, I can drop back down to the relative and understand how I can help people with my knowledge and emptiness, but I can't see why I'm doing that. Like, why is the ultimate nature good? I guess, <laughs> and why is that different from our normal conventional concepts of good and bad? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah it sure does. Yeah, and these are these are Sanjay, and, and and again, this is not a sophist reply. This is in the family of of questions that were asked to the historical Buddha, that are in the category of unanswerable. Um, and you know, this is where this is where philosophers and I can give you the philosophical thing, but uh, 
at a very deep level, the Buddha's silence around these sort of questions was itself the teaching. Um, that at a certain point, this type of uh, philosophy isn't necessarily helpful. But with that said, I, I love these sorts of things. And there are a couple of playful responses that come to mind. One is, even though of course it's unanswerable, is a little bit, what comes to mind is um, Kurt Vonnegut, right? Where, what does he say? Rabbit gets to jump, bird gets to fly, man gets to ask, why, why, why? Um, and so at a certain point, and I think Laka Rinpoche, Sogyal Rinpoche once was asked exactly this type of question. And his response was really, no kidding, he said, that's just the way it is. I mean, that really, that's just the way it is. Why, like, why did that come into the mind of God? Well, we don't posit that because there's no creator principle. Why did it come about this way? It's, it's just the way it is. And, and that is probably not terribly satisfying to um, Western thinkers and especially philosophers. I mean, what kind, of a, what kind of response is that? But it seems to be that this is in fact the fabric of reality. Um, and when one really descends into that fabric, allows oneself to drop into that, and then actually not only experiences that goodness, but becomes that goodness, that's where the answer is. That's where the answer is. And it's an, it's an ineffable answer. It's an answer that you will not be able to construct, to be able to put into conceptual terms. And to me, there's something quite beautiful about that. You know, it's, it's the power of the open question or the unanswered question. So it's, 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 that's probably the best I can do with it because my mind starts to short circuit. You know, I, I don't know where else to go with it besides cascading down all the Western philosophers who have ways of thinking about it. But I have to tell you, I, I get pretty bored with philosophy. I mean, I read it because some of it is pretty cool and I'm a nerd, but if there isn't a praxis involved, if there isn't a practice component, I'm actually not that terribly interested because it's just, it, it, you know, it's just the mental self-indulgence. Um, you, you know, philosophy came about to solve the problem of duality. If you didn't have duality, you wouldn't have philosophy. So cut below duality into non-duality and all the philosophical problems and questions just disappear. That's the point to me. See? I mean, really, think about it. Yeah, yeah. If you didn't have duality, you wouldn't need philosophy. Philosophy comes about to create a problem that the dualistic mind itself creates. I mean, what a pisser is that? So at a certain point, you just drop all that. I mean, it, it's, these are fundamentally, and this is why the Buddha, he literally would just remain silent when these types of questions came his way, that's the answer. Rest in that. And then you'll know. That's real gnosis. That's not this. That's the Gnostic pedagogy that comes from your heart. Then you'll know. Okay. Say no more. Yeah. So Andy, let's do one more. And then for everybody who is still here, I, it, I, I was touched by what Sanjay said about waiting. If there's any way, Andy, and it's a question to you, that we can somehow cue in the people that I can't get to today, if we can somehow put them at the top of the queue for next week. I don't know if you can do that. Um, oh yeah, I'm a step ahead of you. I've already wrote to people and let them know. Yeah, because well I, I really, it, feel, it makes me feel a little bad when people are waiting a full hour and a half and then I say, sorry, you gotta go, bye. Um, we can queue them in and they come back next week and they're at the top of the list. That, yeah, that works so I'll, I'll take one more and then um, gotta go for my run. Okay, great. Well, the next up is uh, Perry and Joanne, and uh, the audio is yours. 
Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, hi. Hi. Um, I'm sort of new to you. I just uh, took the obstacles to um, opportunities course recently. Oh, fun cycle. Yeah, cool. Um, I have a question about this fine line between, in when you're meditating, between hanging out with something and, and allowing its energy to kind of go and self-liberate, the fine line between that and, well, it's really the fine line between feeling it and feeding it. That's exactly right, yeah. So I, I have a history of, I mean, I'm in my 70s, but I, I came to California to do primal therapy. So I've done a lot of therapies that have saved my life, literally, by going very deep and feeling a lot of things. It's such, so I'm, I'm kind of bent that way. So, but I have been trained because of, in the, because of trauma theory in the last 15 to 20 years to, to not always let that go. So, I mean, it's, I understand it's a, it's a push and pull, but in my meditation, so what will happen because I have these other methods that have saved my life is that sometimes I'll just have a thought and I'll notice, oh, that's a thought and I can bring myself back or whatever, and it's no big deal. But other times I have something that's sort of like a hundred foot wave. Yep. And sometimes it's overwhelmingly frightening and sometimes it's overwhelmingly interesting right. and positive. So what happens is I've trained myself now to say, okay, this isn't bad. This is a hundred foot one, let it go. Don't try to suppress that energy. But sometimes it really goes on, yep. like on and on, yep. and it peaks. But it might take a full two minutes, which yep. is a long time in meditating. It might take a full two minutes for the energy to peak. And of course, during that, there's thoughts and proliferation, but they're not normal. I mean, it's, there's, a, there's a kind of a psychic and emotional, there's insight and there's, it's kind of like, so I'm seeing things, you know, and then it, it comes down from the peak and it's kind of at that point, I'm watching myself and I'm saying, don't get hooked into this just because it's amazing and interesting and is revealing all these things to you that are more psychological and so you can write interesting things in your journal lately, later. On the other hand, uh, so you you see my question here. I, I so I, I kind of get I have a tendency to get hooked, but I I know I'm not supposed to. So I'm like, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Great. Great comments and offerings and, and questions. So a number of things come to mind. You know, first of all, there are <clears throat> to start from the beginning. There there are a tremendous array of skillful means, as you mentioned, not not just in the spiritual arena, but in the psychological self help, whatever you want to call it. This is an amazing thing, and it's actually very helpful, I think, I think even for spiritual practitioners. Um, in other words, spirituality in essence, I wouldn't say theoretically, yeah, a combination of theoretically, um, but more essentially, spirituality can handle anything. The teachings on emptiness can handle anything. With that said, however, in practicality, sometimes because of the, the power of um, habitual pattern, the power of these samskaras, the power of momentum, Sometimes it's a little bit like using a fly squatter to stop a, a tank. The methodology is not appropriate to the presentation. 
And so therefore, I am a huge fan of integral theory, integral thinking, and psycho-spiritual development. There, where every, this all occurs along a spectrum. And, and the great gift of knowing all these different tools, and Ken Wilber wrote about this in genius fashion with his very first book on the spectrum of consciousness, that all these different modalities, even within the psychological arena, let alone the spiritual, are very specific, skillful applications for certain levels of, of, of blockage, stuckage, or neurosis. And that's why it's so incredibly helpful to have all these different tools. And for spiritual practitioners, I want to throw this into the mix. Because sometimes what happens, I, I see this a lot, I teach a lot, and I've been teaching for a long time, and it's really revealing to me. I, I will go to some center, and I will see somebody I haven't seen in 20, 25 years, love them, they'll come up to me and they'll pull me aside and they're dealing, wrestling with exactly the same issue they had 25 years ago. And, and I, I, I sit there and I, I, I talk to them a little bit and I ask them what they're doing. And they'll usually say something like, oh, you know, I talked to my meditation instructor, my teacher, they told me I need to meditate harder or something like that. And, and I, I just sit there and I'm going, no, 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 that's not the right crowbar. That's, that's not what's working here. The reason you're still stuck is you're using a method that's not appropriate to the, to the issue. And so therefore you can conjoin, and I, I work with my therapist. I, I have, I mean, I'll take teachings and truths wherever I can get it. I take ultimate refuge in the spiritual, but I will take it anywhere I can get it. And so therefore to your credit, I, I applaud you for getting involved in some of these other things and working with them. However, with that said, then of course there are limitations with that because everybody who has their little bandwidth of applicability, it's, it's a kind of you know, colonialization, colonization thing that takes place, then theirs of course is the best and then they tend to diss everything. And so therefore the integral approach is super important, realizing, honoring all the different skillful means and how, and how helpful they are. So with all that said, now very specifically what you're talking about is very interesting. When you have these big kind of tidal waves that come upon you. These are just energetic upsurges, sometimes being released by some scars. Who knows what the actual ideology is, but these energy patterns just arise. What I invite you to do is a very subtle but very powerful practice here is, conjoined to what we started with, try to stay with that raw energy in and of itself. Not so easy to do because as you yourself pointed out, there tends to be this kind of insatiable appetite to run a little bit of commentary on it. That's what you want to pay attention to. That's what you want to cut and catch. Because you will notice that there will be a very subtle and extremely rapid flicker of reference of that energy to self. There will be a, a flicker that's so subtle that will, that will kick you back in to say, I'm feeling this. And then from there you run. But in a very real level, no, you're not feeling it. That energy is just feeling itself. You don't have to appropriate it, even at the level of self. And so the practice is the energy comes up, start to notice the commentary, and you'll start to notice a very subtle flicker that happens really quickly, that takes the energy and flicks it back to the self, flicks it back to the self. I'm feeling this, I'm experiencing that. No, you're not. The very flicker creates the sense of self. It, that's not what's happening. And that's what you wanna catch. And so then what are you left with? You're just left with this pure, raw, whatever you want to call it, energy, sensation, awareness, doesn't matter what you call it. That's what you stay with. And if you stay with that, that will just take care of itself. That will purify, self-liberate. That's, the, that's the, 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 the real cremation of the experience. You know, the alam grasa, the, the burning 
Um, and so one way to do with this, and I'll close with this for today, is a very beautiful teaching from uh, Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj, this beautiful Indian saint who wrote this incredible book called um, I Am That. And in this book, he says something really hauntingly beautiful. He says, it is disinterestedness that liberates. You should write that down. It is disinterestedness that liberates. This is an incredibly deep statement. So you can be curious, but don't be excessively interested because that's ego coming in. That's ego coming in. And, and I have to say, well, I'll close, again, I always say this one last thing and then I can never shut up. I, I was at a teaching with um, Zigar Contra Rinpoche. He's a great teacher. I love him because he's kind of wrathful, cutting edge, no nonsense guy. <laughs> And this one person was just going on and on and on and on and on about how she, you know, was like working through all the stuff and doing all this processing and doing all this work and processing. And after about five or 10 minutes of this, Rinpoche gently cut her off and, and said something to this effect, I'm paraphrasing, but you get the idea. He said, you Westerners, you're, all you're interested in is just processing, processing, processing. Stop, just cut, just cut, see? And so somewhere in there, you'll find your way. But you know, this way, pay attention to that very subtle, that flicker, the flicker of appropriation. It will even register, I'm feeling this, I'm having this. No, you're not, no, you're not. The minute you say that, you're already off. You're already, you're already appropriating that experience. There is no I. There's just that, whatever you wanna call it, display, shine, radiance, energy, that's all there is. That, you can't put a word on that, but that's all there is. If there is an I'm experiencing that, you're already, you're already removed from the experience. And that's what you want to catch. Stop that, drop back into that furnace or whatever the energy is. And I wouldn't even say be with that, stay with that, be that, be that. Tat tvam asi, thou art that, stay with that. Okay? Thank you. Awesome, hey, thank you everybody. Always fun to do these. I'll see you again um, next. Thursday, and we're still doing my last sales pitch. You know, we're still doing this class on Tuesdays. If you wanna join us, this 10 week thing, you can always catch up. Um, but until then, wash your hands, keep your hearts and minds open. I really enjoy these sorts of gatherings. And Andy will queue up the, the questioners that we didn't get to from next week. We'll put you at the top of the list. Love the Q&A, you guys offer some really great things. So thank you for that and uh, see you next week. Bye.